Hi, I'm George Borarki, and today we're celebrating Oktoberfest, cityscape style. This morning, we'll delve into the history of German-Americans in New York City, learn about German beer, meet a German musician, and get some insight into why the German Shepherd is one of the most popular dog breeds in New York City. It's all coming up on a special Oktoberfest edition of Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Glad you're with us. If you want to experience Italian foods and culture in New York City, you can hit up Little Italy. If you have a hunger for authentic dim sum, Chinatown's got you covered. But if you want to experience anything German, you may have to look a little harder. Not much remains of the influence of German immigrants here. Kathy Jolowitz is trying to preserve the little that's left. She's the historian of Yorkville, an Upper East Side neighborhood that was once teeming with German-Americans. Kathy, welcome to Cityscape. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. If we were able to travel back in time to Manhattan's Lower East Side in the late 19th, early 20th century, what would we see? The Lower East Side was what they called at that time the German ghetto, and it's not the ghetto we think of today. It was an enclave where nobody traveled outside of its boundaries. And everything was conducted in German like it was Little Germany, a.k.a. Klein Deutschland, which means Little Germany. That's where they started to build their lives. They very seldom migrated outside of the city. One-third of the New York population was German. They lived in terrible, terrible squalor, in terrible conditions. Landlords loved to have the Germans because they always paid on time. The living conditions would be unacceptable to us today. Were these tenement houses? They were worse than tenement houses. They, you know, they were walk-ups. They were what we call railroad flats, but they had windowless rooms. Toilets were down in the courtyard. Everybody shared a toilet. If the German community, though, wasn't venturing outside of little Germany... What were these folks doing for money at that time? Oh, they were craftsmen. They were tailors. They were builders of machines. They created beautiful designs, woodworking, things like that. People would come into Klein Deutschland to buy things. Levi started there, you know, and then some of the famous department stores started there as little shops. There was a large, large population of German men and very few German women. So a lot of the German men married with the Irish uh, women. It was very difficult for a German woman to find work because they did mostly household work or, you know, sewing or something in that craft. It was very difficult because they didn't speak English. So most of their bosses would be English-speaking. If they did find a job in a German household, it was very unpleasant because the German Hausfrau was very strict. Mm. So it was very difficult times for them, but they stayed together, they worked together, they lived together, and then the tragic accident happened on the East River, the what we call the New York Titanic. In the summer of 1904. 1904. The General mm-hmm. Slocum. The General Slocum. It mm-hmm. was a paddle boat. It was an excursion boat to paddle wheels on either side. There were many of them. But at 9 a.m., Pastor Haas from St. Mark's Church in the East Village greeted all the people coming on for the annual Sunday school picnic. They were celebrating the end of school. No, this was actually on a Wednesday in the summer. And okay. we're not, we cannot figure out why they did it in the middle of the week. But most of the passengers were women and children. 
Of course, then there was a crew, which was not really a crew. It was people picked up in bars the night before and who knew nothing about the running of a ship. And then the band. There were, you know, a mixture of ethnic groups in the band. There were Jewish and there were Irish and American band players. But most of the passengers were German. Women and children, as you said, and that makes sense. It was in the middle of the week. The husbands right. were off at work. That's right. And it was a time when there were no phones. There were no ways of communicating. I mean, it was very telegraph and things like that. So when the accident did occur, the central point for finding out what was happening was St. Mark's Church. So this boat went out on its excursion. It went out it at 9 a.m., with 1,446 passengers, by 10 a.m. off the shores of Yorkville on the East River, 1,021 perished mm. in a horrible fire. Some of them burned, some of them drowned. Oh, both, yes. The life vests pretty much crumbled. Well, they yes. I mean, the inspector's jobs were really pretty much sinecures. They just came on and said, yes, yes, the vests are there. But they were never tested. They, the vests had, they turned into powder. They weren't the cork anymore. So when the women put on these vests with these long skirts, these long, heavy skirts, they just plunged right to the bottom with their babies, with their children, with whatever they had. There was a guy who thought he was going to make a fortune and clean out the penny machine and jumped over him because and he sunk right to the bottom. There are a hundred stories about all these people that were on board, and it was pretty horrific. I mean, I was fortunate enough to meet still a couple of the survivors in their elderly age, and one elderly lady, Adela Wetherspoon, became very good friends with my mom, and my mom kind of looked up to her, and both elderly, and they were almost a hundred-year-olds, you know, and I feel very close to this situation. I was on the board of the Memorials Committee, and I got to know these people even though they were dead because I built this large exhibit about the Slocum disaster, and I got to know these characters and what happened to them, and it was just horrible. This disaster literally tore the community apart. It did. It was tradition in that in those days, in the 1800s, that when somebody passed away in the family, a white ribbon was hung on the door, and Charles Dersch had nine ribbons, and he founded Slocum uh, Memorial uh, Society, which later became the committee because all the descendants had died out. We kept it alive. And the 100th anniversary, we had a lot of events going on, you know, to commemorate that era. After the Slocum disaster, many of the German immigrants living in Little Germany moved on. They left the neighborhood. Well, they moved on, yes. A lot of these men came home that night not knowing what happened because there was no way unless people ran through the streets or whatever. And some men came home and found they had lost their entire families, entire families. There were many suicides, People just couldn't cope with it anymore. You know, you're not in a society today where you have this psychological help and support. Your church was the support. So when the disaster happened, people congregated and waited at the church. The pastor lost his wife, his daughter, and his sister-in-law. And uh, his son did not, his 19-year-old son did not go on the excursion that day. The pastor did survive. The church became the center, and everybody gathered around the center. And I have pictures of worried faces and the people just gathering there in hope. And they waited there for days to see who can... Sometimes somebody would come running around the corner and there would be a big cheer to see that somebody did survive. So these people just kept going around corners. They'd see people in shop, in shops that weren't there anymore. They'd look at houses and they just could no longer bear it. 
So it was too painful for them to stay in the neighborhood. Yes, they wanted a new life. And Yorkville was up and coming. It was the northern lands and it was being built up. Yorkville is on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Yorkville is on the Upper East Side. A lot of people say, well, what are the boundaries of Yorkville? And in my book, I give several boundaries. And I say, well, I don't answer them. I say, in reference to what ethnic group? In what years? So... In um, 1664, it became the hamlet of Yorkville. And uh, it has nothing to do with York Avenue because there were two different reasons for naming for uh, uh, York Avenue, York, and Yorkville, Yorkville. Germans, though, largely settled around 86th Street, right? Yes. 72nd Street was more the Bohemian uh, Slavic Boulevard. 79th Street was the Austro-Prussian or uh, Hungarian uh, Boulevard. 86th Street was the German Boulevard. But you must remember in those days there was a Prussian Empire. So the Prussian Empire, all these countries, the Poles, the Czechs, the Slovaks, some areas of Russia, some areas of the Balkans, they all spoke German. Today, they're all communist countries, so now they speak Russian. So in those days, Yorkville Klein Deutschland was a gorgeous mosaic that you will never see again because these were different ethnic groups that came together under one common language, which was not English but German. So therefore, they called it Germantown. The Germans who first settled in Yorkville, were they primarily the folks who came from Little Germany? On the Lower East Side? I I would say yes. There were some here. Germans in America have not been really given the credit that they deserve in help building this country. Um, Of course, you know, what happened in Europe had really nothing to do with the people here except that they bore the the sins of their father, so to speak. So they changed their names. Johann Jakob von Aster. That was John Jacob Astor, and mm-hmm. he came from Waldorf, Germany. Uh, Guschenberg, he became Belmont. He built Belmont Racetrack. And I could go on and on. I mean, uh, Rockenfeller was, was a beautiful uh, little village in, in Germany, and they're from the Rockefeller. So uh, they go back. Another prominent German family in New York City, the Steinway family, and it wasn't <laughs> always Steinway. Yes, and Henry is still alive. He's way in his 90s, charming old gentleman. Actually, he built a whole village in in Astoria. And uh, again, it came named after Astor. Mm-hmm. And he built a whole village for his, you know, his workmen. But he had a house and, and it's still standing there. It's it, He didn't live in it, but his foreman lived in it when he started making pianos in Yorkville. The old house is, it's still a wooden house. There are two of them left on East 92nd Street. But his name was Steinweg, Henry Steinweg. So, you know, they anglicized their names through the years. How much German influence do we still see on Manhattan? It's almost all gone. I have been trying to preserve its heritage through my exhibit, which was entered in the congressional record. I have built a new exhibit now, a more modern exhibit, and just focused on Yorkville. I have just found fantastic new material about 86th Street. I mean, 86th Street had many, many names. Other than Little Germany, it was called Germantown, or it was called the German Boulevard, or it was called Sauerkraut Boulevard, or it was called the German Broadway. 
the heart of Yorkville, as it is known today, was between 3rd and 2nd Avenue. And that's where all the dance halls and all the cafes and restaurants were. However, little known was 3rd to Lexington Avenue, that in 1902, Lowe's Yorkville Deutsches Theater was built. And uh, that was live German theater. And that was on the north side of the, of the street. To the west on Lexington was F.F. Proctor's Theater, which became the RKO Theater. Then to its east uh, was the Orpheum Theater. Across from the L was the Lyceum Theater. Then going south to the southeast corner was the Casino, which is, was very famous up into the 60s. So what's left in the neighborhood, though? I know there are a couple of restaurants. The only, the only places around 86th Street that are left physically uh, is Shala and Weber. Shala and Weber is the butcher delicatessen. And if you go in there, you feel like you're in Germany. It, it, you don't have the New York atmosphere. And then next to that, south of that, one house down, is the um, Heidelberg Restaurant. So just one restaurant. Yes. Wow. The Heidelberg Restaurant. You know no other home. Yorkville has been your home all your life, right? Pretty much so, yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I ventured out a little bit, um, you know, during the war and whatever, because my mother had to work in the Air Force. Was life difficult for Germans in New York City after World War II? Yes. It was very difficult for them during both World Wars. After World War One, the people not only changed their names, but the city changed a lot of names, or the countries changed a lot of names. Hamburgers became Salisbury steaks. Frankfurters became hot dogs. Sauerkraut became Liberty cabbage. There was a lot of resentment. But during World War II, you have to realize a lot of these Germans came to this country to build a new life. Their children were American. They became Americans themselves. One-third of the American army were of German descent. And these people had to go home, back to their homelands, uh, their heritage, and fight their own people. So it was very difficult. You'd, the German families would be sitting at their dinner table and the whole apartment would be raided. And I hear stories now about neighbors who live next to these German families. They said that there was a lot of commotion next door, and then the next morning they would go and the door would be open and the apartment would be totally untouched, but there was void of people and never seen again. You did have some Nazi sympathizers, though, on Manhattan's yes. east side. Yeah, there was um, a Fritz Kuhn. He seemed to be the self, you know, self-styled leader of the American Nazi Party, and he did instigate in the very early times a big uh, event in Madison Square Garden. It was a large turnout, but he started to decline after that. And in 1938, there was a big brawl in front of the casino uh, on 86th Street between the American Foreign Legion and the German-American Nazi Party. I mean, they they were more like a gang than, you know, a movement. Uh, he tried very hard to get this going. But when he went to Germany, uh, Hitler would not shake his hand. He wouldn't even recognize him. He boasted a huge membership when in reality it was not. So, of course, a lot of the Germans were labeled. I mean, you were ashamed to say your name was Schmidt or, or, or Meyer or, you know, some common German name. So a lot of people that I know, their family changed their names, but you see them in all the German-American groups, but with Americanized names. So when you ask them, they say, oh, well, I mean, my name is Williams, but we were Wilhelms in those days. Again, so. it was hard to be German. Anything German was not popular in the United That's States right. of America. 
That's right. It was very, very difficult. Very difficult. A lot of Italian immigrants, Irish immigrants in New York City eventually moved to the Burbs. Did that happen with German immigrants? When they tore down the Third Avenue L in the 50s, then the developers came in and took down all these railroad flats and build large buildings. There are still a few of the small buildings left, but that's when they their homes were displaced. And I mean, where they, do they go? Do they go to Westchester, Long they Island, went New Jersey? To, went to places, uh, the borders of Brooklyn and Queens, like Glendale, Middle Village, places like that, Ridgewood. That became more German areas. New Jersey had a large German population, and Long Island. So a lot of these German-American clubs still exist today based on, you know, that movement. And I know, Kathy, that you also teach German here in New York City. And I may embarrass myself with this next question, but can you teach me a little German this morning, a few words? Well, first of all, I'll teach you that I am a professional student. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I only teach beginner one when the teacher's late. <laughs> what are some of your favorite German words? Ich liebe dich und Gott sei Dank. Und, uh, und Gott sei Dank. What does God, that mean? Sei, oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> ah. <laughs> How do I say thank you in German? Dankeschön. Dankeschön. I should know that one. That's a very easy one, huh? Well, Dankeschön, Kathy Jalowitz, for being here. Es freut mich sehr. And that means? It was my pleasure. Kathy Jalowitz is the historian of Yorkville, an Upper East Side neighborhood that was once home to scores of German immigrants. As Kathy mentioned, today there are only a few remnants of Yorkville's German heritage, including the Heidelberg Restaurant. And that's where we caught up with an Oompa performer who calls himself the Old Cottage Musician. My name is Werner Gobel, W-E-R-N-E-R, last name is Gobel, G like George, O-E-B-E-L. And I'm... Uh, wait a minute, I came 59 to the country, that makes it 41 and 9... 57 years in the country, in the good United States. Well, let's play the traditional uh, European-German uh, music, like uh, the, especially now where I have the Oktoberfest in Munich, you like to play a lot of beer-drinking songs and stuff like that, where people... Schungels stand up at the tables uh, on the benches and Schungeln have a beer in their hand. Everybody wants some Oktoberfest music wherever you go. So I play in country clubs, in uh, various other clubs, in senior citizen homes. And I played the traditional old style music, and everybody gets a kick out of it. But naturally, I squeeze some other songs in there too. You cannot play just about umpa umpa all the time. Sometimes I even play a macarena or a YMCA and stuff like that to cheer them up. And then, of course, I make them drink a lot of beer because if they don't drink beer, the house don't make no money, etc., etc. Porter <laughs> Goble plays oompa music and calls himself the old cottage musician. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. 
On this morning's show, we're throwing our very own Oktoberfest. And an Oktoberfest wouldn't be an Oktoberfest without beer, or at least a discussion about it. My next guest is a German beer expert and professor at Farmingdale University. Jeffrey Gabe, welcome to Cityscape. Good to be here. Now, I know your credentials, but for anyone listening who might be saying to themselves, what makes this guy an expert on German beer? Tell us about yourself. Well, I actually have a Ph.D. in history. My specialty is modern European and modern German history. But in 2006, I published a book on the history of Munich's Hofbräuhaus, which is the most famous beer hall in Munich. Most people have been there, especially American tourists, always go to the Hofbräuhaus when they're in Munich. So even if they're in Bavaria and it's not Oktoberfest time, if you go to this particular beer hall, it's always like Oktoberfest, lots of dancing, lots of music, and lots of beer. So over the course of 10 years, I wrote this book on the history of the Hofbräuhaus, which dates all the way back to 1589. It has quite the rich history. Tell us how it got started. The Hofbräuhaus House was actually founded by Duke William V in 1589 because he paid to import beer for his court. In those days, it was very popular to give free beer to all your servants and people that lived at court. That was over 600 people. The price of importing beer from northern Germany got so expensive... It also got Lutheran. Uh, Bavaria and Munich is a Roman Catholic area. Uh, after 1517, northern Germany was a, a Protestant area, and the king decided for cost purposes and for religious purposes it would be better if he built his own brewery. And so in 1589, he created something called the Hofbräuhaus, which means literally royal brewery. But in its early days, it was not serving beer to the general public, right? That's correct. It was, first of all, for the court. Until they started to make something called Maybach, around 1610, they invented uh, or they came up with a copy of an Einpockish beer that they used to make in the north, but they stole a recipe and or got a brewer from the north that knew the recipe and made their own Bach beer. And that became so popular that they actually um, began to start selling it in different parts of Bavaria, Regensburg and um, Straubing and places like that. So the beer became very popular shortly after its establishment, and ultimately they had to offer it to the public. What went into that beer? Nothing but the following ingredients, barley, hops, and pure alpine water. The Bavarians had already passed a beer purity law in 1516, that stated that only the following ingredients could be in there, barley, hops, and water. Later on, they added yeast to that. They didn't understand the properties of yeast in 1516. And that also protected Bavarians from drinking beer from other places that had additives in it that were made for because they had to travel long distances, preservatives. Some brewers were known for putting stuff into the beer that would um, make it last longer, make it cheaper to produce, and the Bavarian Duke decided that that simply couldn't be. Um, A lot of the stuff they put in the beer was dangerous, and you couldn't drink pure water, obviously, in those days. So they had to have either beer, brandy wine, or wine or something to drink. So beer was very important. So they had to guarantee its purity. And so the Bavarians came together and passed this law in 1516, which is the oldest law regulating a commercial food consumable in the West. You have said that German beer is the best beer in the world. That's an argument I would be willing to make. Back that up for (laughs) me. Why do you say that? Uh, First of all, because of the purity. Most German brewers stick to the purity law. Barley, hops, water, and yeast only. There's also no pasteurization, if you drink it there at least, so that the beer is smoother, it's clearer, um, with less chemicals in it, there's less side effects from drinking the beer. I was recently this summer in Belgium. I would 
be hard-pressed to make an argument against Belgium. Belgian beer is also very good, but uh, it's because of the brewing tradition, really, that goes back, especially at the Hofbräu House, but in other breweries as well in Munich. It's the brewing tradition. It's, it's, it's more than just um, a way to sell beer. It's a tradition that the brewers are really hard-pressed to go against. Are you able to find this beer in many New York City bars? Believe it or not, you can get Hofbräu House beer in the Waldorf Astoria which I was surprised at, but they do have in the bar in the Waldorf Astoria, the main lobby, Hofbräu House beer. I believe that Schneider's down on in Alphabet City uh, has Hofbräu House beer. Certainly Heidelberg's on 2nd Avenue has plenty of German beers on tap. Is it an um, expensive beer? They are slightly more expensive than the American beers, yes. And that's because of the import costs and the quality of the beer. So, yeah. Talking more about the Hofbräu House, I understand that it has been a very popular place through the years. Some pretty notable people have stopped by there, including Ulysses S. Grant. Ulysses S. Grant was there um, as uh, an ex-president doing a European tour. Um, and according to the stories that I read from his ambassador there, when they tried to get him to go to a museum or to visit the cathedrals or to do any of the artistic things that Munich had to offer, he was less than uh, interested. But apparently once they got into the Hofer house, they couldn't get him out, which may be telling since, as you probably know, <laughs> Ulysses S. Grant later on died of alcoholism. He was a... Uh which is a tragic case. The author Thomas Wolfe was there especially and wrote about it in his books, especially The Web and the Rock, um, where he um, just talked about what a different atmosphere it is to sit with people you don't know and by the end of the night, you know, singing with them and dancing with them in different languages. You don't even, Thomas Wolfe couldn't even remember how he communicated with some of these people by the time he got out of the Hofbräuhaus or the Oktoberfest actually as well. Um, so he was quite uh, enamored with the, the Hofbräuhaus and the beer culture that is prevalent in Munich. And that's what they try to recreate every year at Oktoberfest, even in this country where they have Oktoberfest as well. What can you tell us about the history of Oktoberfest? Because my understanding is that it marks an anniversary, a wedding, something like yes, that. Yes, the um, original Oktoberfest, 12 October 1810, was the wedding of Ludwig I, who would be King Ludwig I, and his wife, um, Teresa von Sachse-Hilberghausen, and it was a party given by his father, King Maximilian, who wanted to do something for the kid getting married. So they declared this party. Uh, the, the wedding took place on the 12th of October, and the king decided that there should be horse racing. So they created a little meadow on the west side of the field uh, for horse racing. And the king also decreed that to celebrate the wedding, there should be free beer. And so the following year to celebrate the anniversary, they tried to do that again until eventually it became more of a sort of chamber of commerce operation where the big brewers would come in and sell beer at this particular meadow. They brought a first carousel there and a couple of rides in the 1819, 1820 or so. And then gradually it grew into essentially a lot of the similar things you see in America like the Columbus Day Fairs. And, and it's really a big town fair. But on an international scale, uh, it's really become a – it's not just a beer fest. There's rides. There's, there's plenty of food there and different cultural observations too. There's a later Hosen Parade on one weekend. There's a brass band competition on another weekend. So it really became a sort of cultural celebration on an international scale of Bavarian culture. Uh, even though it started with just this little wedding back in 1810 on a field, out, a muddy field, way outside the city walls of Munich. Beer expert and professor at Farmingdale University, Jeffrey Gabe, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. <laughs>
According to the New York City Health Department, the German Shepherd is the fifth most popular dog in the Big Apple, behind the Shih Tzu, Pit Bull, Labrador Retriever, and Mixed Breed, in that order. Kathy Bauman knows a thing or two about the German Shepherd. She breeds them in Tuxedo, New York. They're great with children. Basically, of course, you have to be careful with breeding because breeding, of course, can cause that nervousness and fearfulness. Um, which you don't want in a German Shepherd. They can be great with other dogs as long as you get a good breeding. Now, how do you get a good breeding? Basically go to a responsible and reliable breeder. Are there a lot of bad breeders out there? Of course. Backyard breeders is what we call them. How much exercise do these dogs need? A lot. They need a lot of stuff to do. They always want something to do. But as long as you run them and you give them that exercise, usually people in the country and stuff who have dogs, I mean... They're happy. According to the New York City Health Department, the German Shepherd is the fifth most popular breed of dog in New York City. Now, that surprised me because I didn't think they would make good apartment dogs, do they? They can as long as, like I said, like in New York City, I mean, I sell a lot of dogs actually to people in New York City. Basically, what happens is a lot of places in New York or any other city for that matter, um, there's a lot of parks nearby and a lot of uh, doggy daycare is what they call it. So a lot of times what happens is is either they drop them off at daycare or they have a dog walker or they go and they run them. Like I said, I mean, you know, as long as you run them in the city or at least you let them out, you know, and let them be free like a dog should be, they're good like in a park. You said that German Shepherds do get along well with children, but do they need to be socialized from a very early age in order to get along with strangers? In a way, I mean, my breeding, basically, I mean, my dogs are great with kids and great with everything, even if they don't really see kids from the time they're young. But in general, yes, any dog, that's any dog out there. I mean, you have to socialize them from the time they're young, meaning bring them out there. Uh, bring them around people, and let them understand different circumstances that are going to take place in life so that they understand, you know, who's good and who's not good. I mean, they're a natural guard dog. I mean, that's no, no questions asked. Yeah, it's my understanding that German Shepherds are very protective of their owners. 100%. They usually have one owner. Now, these dogs shed quite a bit, too, right? Every <laughs> day, that's, 365. That's the, <laughs> yes. that's, that's the bad thing about German Shepherds, yes. 100%. A lot of baths, a lot of brushing, no doubt about it. Kathy Bauman, thanks so much for your time. Anytime. Kathy Bauman breeds German Shepherds in Tuxedo, New York. That brings us to the end of this special Oktoberfest edition of Cityscape. Dankeschön for listening, and Dankeschön to our producer, Michal Neria. I'm George Bodarki. Have a great weekend. I'd say that in German if I knew how.